The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm your host, Dan Schmidt, and this is my co-host... Hey, it's Nico. This week we're going to be discussing TV shows that were canceled during the 2009-2010 season, and we're also going to jump in and talk about one of the big opening movies this summer... Iron Man 2, and its connection to the upcoming Marvel movies. First, uh, before we get into our canceled TV series and why they got canceled, I first want to talk about a little piece of news I found out about Big Bang Theory. The article that was on fancast.com, that's an affiliate of Comcast, their website, and it basically says that the stars of Big Bang Theory want a pay raise of a quarter of a million dollars per episode, which is kind of outrageous, and it's a little bit a lot to ask. I think that they deserve it. Big Bang Theory, I am about halfway through season two. I'm trying to get caught up so we can add it to our slate for the show in the fall, and I think it's a really great show. It's really well done. I think Jim Parsons, who plays Sheldon, is absolutely hilarious. He makes that show, and I think he deserves it, and I think the other actors deserve it too, because they just make it great, and their chemistry together is really good. Also, Big Bang Theory may be up for an Emmy this year, and I think it's well-deserved. I think it's actually funnier than the show that's been winning the Emmy, 30 Rock. So I'm all on board for them getting a pay raise. And Nico, what's your thought on it? I agree that they deserve a pay raise. We're going into Season 5 of the show. It's potentially one of the top comedies on television right now, are excellent actors. They're doing a great job. Everybody who watches the show regularly loves it. I've watched it from the very beginning and love every minute of it. I think they deserve the money, but a quarter of a million, which essentially is $1.25 million if all five of the main actors get that same amount of money, that's a lot to ask for. But if you think about it, when Friends was at its peak, each actor was getting $1 million per episode. So this is a lot less. Friends was an hour drama, a lot more advertising they can sell. So it, it, it's kind of hard to say whether it, the same money is deserved. But it, definitely a fourth of the money those actors were making is definitely deserved by these excellent actors. Especially when they were only making 65000 an episode. Do you think Big Bang Theory reached its peak, though? I don't know if it's at its peak, but it's definitely on the rise to it. So if you figure a million is what the best shows get at their peak or towards the end of their run, then a quarter of a million per actor seems to be on par for that, at least. Yeah, and I think the show's going to continue to get better. CBS has a lot of faith in it. And they're actually going to move the show to Tuesday night to head up uh, another night of comedy shows. 
So we'll see how that works out, and we'll see if it's up for an Emmy. Uh, it would be wonderful if the show won. Now we're going to move on to the shows that were canceled during the 2009-2010 series. And the three shows we're going to talk about in particular, they're shows that have a lot of press, a lot of fan following behind them, and I happen to enjoy them. I thought they were a little bit better than Grey's Anatomy, which we really feel we have to has to die. But the three shows that we are going to be covering are Heroes, Dollhouse, and Flash Forward, which were all just recently, well, Dollhouse was canceled January, but the other two shows were just canceled recently in May. So we're going to start things off with Heroes. to TV.com, the summary for the show in its entirety is Heroes is a serial saga about people all over the world discovering that they have superpowers and trying to deal with how this change affects their lives. And Heroes was a show that started out rock solid. In its first season, it was nominated for an Emmy for the pilot of the episode and for the show in its entirety. It was one of the big shows that was up for an Emmy and it was great. Every episode was very compelling. The story had me really engrossed, and it was really a big step up from some of the big shows that were on that were kind of floundering. 24 had a very weak season that year, and also it was the season of Smallville that was really bad, which was season 6. And most of the fans hate that. So Heroes was a great show, and I really felt like it was Smallville 2.0, and it was going to take over the industry and almost maybe kind of put Smallville to an end especially when a lot of writers from Smallville and people that were involved with that show moved over to Heroes to work with them. Greg Beeman, who was a big director of several Smallville episodes, went over to Heroes. And Jeff Loeb, who was a big writer on uh, Smallville, went over to Heroes. And my favorite episode of that season was Company Man, and that was the episode where we found out Noah Bennett's backstory and how he got involved with the company and things like that. And it was a storyline that just focused on the Claire Bennett story instead of all the other stories that were going with all, all the other characters, and I really loved it. And it was a great character study episode that was similar to ones that were shown on Moss and also Flash Forward, which we will get into later. And Nico, what, what's your thoughts on uh, the first season of Heroes? What did you think? The first season of Heroes was my favorite throughout the whole series. It was totally different than the new shows that were on that year. It really excited me for the superhero genre again and my friends and I every week we were glued to the TV watching it we would go to class come home and watch it first thing so it, it was definitely a great great season yeah and also it was, a, it was a major part of a lot of our conversations as well and right I think it was about when we started our weekly conversations. Yes. And really jump-started those, those conversations because it really gave us a, a common ground that we could talk about and uh, really solidified those conversations. Yeah, and Heroes was great for me. It was, it was almost important to me during the week because it was a show that was separate from the Marvel and DC universe. So you didn't have to know all the backstory, and I wasn't making people's heads explode when I would talk about the characters on Heroes and their powers and things like that. 
I didn't have to explain 60 years of backstory, which I sometimes have to do with Smallville and, and the superhero movies that are coming out. I have to go back and explain plot lines and things like that. And Heroes was a simple, accessible show that you didn't have to do all that. And Heroes, essentially, if it would have worked out, it could have been its own separate superhero universe, which is huge. I mean, that was that's unheard of. It's always DC and Marvel, and that's how that goes. And this Heroes was a great thing. And I thought as it moved into Season 2, the show was still great, and it had a huge addition with Kristen Bell as L. Kristen Bell, who plays Veronica Mars. Also, there's an article on the blog that says I have a pretty big crush on Kristen Bell, as Nico knows. And it was great that she was on the show. I was excited. Her character was great. Her dialogue was great. She was kind of this badass chick, which I really liked. And it also helped me form one of the characters I'm using for my graphic novel. But the season two did have some issues. There's a there's this Irish girl named Caitlin that was added as a love interest for Peter. And he brought her to the future, and they never brought her back. So that was a big plot hole. I always kind of went with Back to the Future rules. Uh, the fact that it was like what happened with Jennifer in Back to the Future, that when the time travel happened, the world reset itself around her, and it was okay. So I think that's what they did with Caitlin. That's what I'm going to go with. Again, it's a big hot plot hole, and it was made fun of a lot online. And then we also had the writer's strike, which cut the season short by about 12 episodes. Nico, what were, where were you with season two? Season two was definitely hurt by the writer's strike, which is not the show's fault, but essentially it was the beginning of the decline for my interest in Heroes. I'm not a Kristen Bell fan. I think she's fine, but I know you have a major crush on her, as you just said. I think she's a good actress, but she's not my favorite by any means. I did enjoy her character. Um, I don't know... Was it in season two that was her ending of the show, or it did was she? In season is that three. third? That was okay. the third season. At in the, the third end season, of the villain's arc. Yeah, I did. I, I didn't like the uh, end of her character very much. You can comment that on your own. But season two was like a lot of sequels in movies. Not as good as the the first one. Definitely not the Star Wars where the second one is probably the better of the two stories, this was definitely not the case in Heroes. I think that's a very, very valid point. I like that sequel point. first season was so good, it was just really, really, really hard to top. And I think the same situation happened with the popular show 24. As for the reasons that this show failed, I think it started with the writer's strike. But I'm not really, I don't want to totally go with that being the reason why the show failed, and I came up with three reasons. And, Nico, you can decide which one you want to go with. First one is the reason why the show failed. A is the writer's strike. B was that the villain's story arc, which was the beginning of season three, that was part one, that story arc was god-awful. And C, the bad press about season two being too slow and season three just being chocked full of too many characters got to the writer's head and they just kept making things worse. To be honest, the writer's strike did not kill the show, as you said. Okay. What killed the show was the villain's story arc being so weak after the writer's strike. So the writer's strike hurt the show's momentum. 
than having a crap storyline started really having viewers jump ship. And then the writers panicked and wrote a terrible ending to the show, what essentially became the ending of the show, just fast-paced all the time because they had heard, like you said, season two was too slow. Well, the fix for that is not going from 10 miles an hour to 100 miles an hour. you got to find a happy medium. Unfortunately, I think it was a combination of the three, but ultimately, if you want to throw it down to one thing, it was the crappy story arc of villains after the shortened season caused by the writer's strike. Right. That's that's what I'm going to go with. And it really, that issue started with the villain story arc. And I think the problems with that arc, first, there was way too many characters. They added Absolutely. all these new people. I didn't care for them. It, it wasn't great. And if you're going to call the plot like villains on a show called The Heroes, then you've got to do heroes versus villains and then go at it. And they tried to set it up. It felt like it was going there, and then they just totally threw it out the window. And I don't know if that's like, oh, no, the fans aren't going to want this. We're going to back off or what. But it was just bad. And at that time, there was kind of a philosophy going around that you couldn't have a superhero fight scene superhero-powered fight scene on TV. And Smallville, thankfully, threw it out the window with Season 9 and also their Absolute Justice episode. But I think that's why they backed off of it. And really, with the network show, I think they have more money than CW, and they could go for something like that. Especially since the show, it still had a big following, and they were given a Season 3 budget, which is pretty large, and they should have been able to do it. And I, I don't know why they backed off of it. That was really dumb. The other thing is Arthur Petrelli. He was an awful villain. Flat Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Awful. Nothing against Robert Forrester. He's been in other movies, and he's been great. But he literally sounded like the Wicked Witch. There, there was a <laughs> lie. And I quote, he said, I've got you now, hero, and your powers too. And I was just like, this is awful. How can you have this bad of a villain? I mean, there's villains that were bad in DC Comics in the 50s and 60s, but this guy, this was the worst, by far. That I, I felt like I was watching The Wizard of Oz, and I was going to hear... Every time he came on the screen, that's, I mean, that's just how awful he was. And then the other thing was, there was major changes in the characters' personalities. Mohinder had a god-awful story arc where it kind of followed the plot line of the movie The Fly. If you've seen it, I've not seen the movie A Friend of Mine, that's what he said. And that was kind of, uh, that was kind of lame. I mean, I, it was awful. And then with Elle's character, they did that horribly. Elle started out as this badass, tough girl, very similar to Kristen Bell's other character, Veronica Mars, who I absolutely love. But I was excited when she came in and she was a badass female character. But then they threw it out the window and kind of just made her this whiny blonde girl that ended up getting killed savagely by Siler at the end. And it was just awful. I was so sad because I think she's a great actor. I think she's really talented. And they totally underused her. And I don't know if she asked to be killed off. I wouldn't blame her if she did because she had she's capable of getting other opportunities and has been in movies uh, like Forgetting Sarah Marshall. So I was like... That's fine. I don't understand what happened with Mohinder, though. I was really disappointed. He was one of my favorite characters of the first two seasons. 
And I like that there was a normal that there were multiple people that didn't have abilities on the show. So it was really dumb where they had a character that didn't have abilities get some. I didn't like that. I just I felt like if you're gonna do a show with people with superheroes with powers, you need people that don't have powers. I think that's why Smallville worked because there were people that didn't have powers. Uh, there was that whole secrets concept with that show that kept it going. Uh, Nico, do you have, got anything about the villain story arc you want to throw in there? I agree with most of your points. I, I did not like Ando getting powers, like you said. Yeah, that uh, was another issue. He he was the great sidekick that became a sidekick with powers. That that just kind of killed that interaction between Hero and Ando. Yeah, and it was. The, go ahead. I was going to say, it was it was nice to see later in the series that they gave him a little more screen time with the whole love story with Hero's sister and things like that. I did enjoy that. I'm a sucker for a love story. But the giving him powers was terrible. The Mohinder was... He was all over the board. In, he was a different character every season. And that was frustrating because, like you said, he was one of your favorites. I kind of thought he was annoying, but that was probably because he kept changing his personality every couple episodes. If you go back but, and watch season one, he's a great, he's the, a very solid part of that season. But well, I agree that, with I, that. I really don't know. I I really don't get what they were thinking of this writer's room on the show. I sure. really felt like I could have gone in there, or friends of mine could have gone in there, Nico, you couldn't even have gone in there. I know you don't have the background that I had with going to Columbia and everything, but you could have went in there and fixed that in 30 seconds. I would hope so. That that was really bad, and I think that's the reason why we've got this stat. And this is on Wikipedia. You can look it up. And it's also linked to a solid source, so it's not like some guy made this up. But their ratings in Season 3, in literally about six episodes, dropped from 13.10, I think it's million viewers. Yeah. To 3.81. That's numbers outrageous. And I can tell you just how much this show would. Ozzy Osbourne there. It's just, it was crazy. And the Fugitive story arc, which was the second half of season three, had a redemption which involved the carnival. I really liked the villain that was with the carnival. His name's escaping me right now. Because you remember what it is? The main character? The, yeah, the main, the bad guy that was with them. The leader. Oh, oh, no, it's escaping me as well. <laughs> I, that's, I mean, that's just telling you how forgettable this show ended up becoming at the end. And I thought those two story arcs were better. I liked the addition of Emma, the deaf girl. That was kind of interesting. And I liked where that was going, but it was just too little too late. And what I really think they should have done, and Nico, if you have a different opinion on this, go ahead and shoot it out there. I think they should have done the first season as it is Genesis. That was rock solid. It got nominated for an Emmy, so that was really great. They should have finished out the generation stories like they were and just stuck to it. Most shows in their second season are a little bit weaker, and when they stick to their plot line, normally things work out, and it's okay. And I think they should have finished out Generations with their planned plot line. But if any of you own the season two DVD as Heroes, you can go and check this out. But I think they should have finished it with Exodus which was the continuation of the Generations story arc with the virus and everything. And the virus is actually going to get unleashed 
at the end of Generations that Exodus was about them going and trying to stop it. And I think that would have been interesting, especially since it would have been very similar to a really popular X-Men plot line called with involving the Legacy Virus. If you've seen either X-Men the Animated Series or read the comics, the Legacy Virus is a very interesting story arc within the comics. It also was responsible for the death of Colossus of the X-Men, which is a great storyline. And it would have been cool to see that go out with Heroes. Also, I think it would have given Mohinder something new as being the guy who's trying to stop the virus. That would have been really interesting. And again, they didn't go with that. And then I think what should have happened is the outcome of the virus thing should have made people all paranoid about the heroes, and that should have caused the fugitive czar. Instead of that weird 180 with Nathan Petrelli's character, where he decided that he was going to capture all the heroes to make them safer or whatever. That was very unclear to me. I did like the Hunter character. That made sense with him, and it really should have just been him going after everybody. Peter Petrelli, I mean, Nathan Petrelli should have been involved in that. And then went ahead with the redemption story with the carnival. Because I think that was, I, I kind of liked that story. It was weak, and there should have been more action, especially in the showdown between Peter and then the guy in charge of the carnival at the end. Yeah, Samuel. Samuel, yes, that's his name. His name is Samuel. I think that would have been fine, but by this point in season four, NBC slashed their budget. So they couldn't do the big fight scene like they had planned, or I don't know if they had it planned or not. Again, this show I still think was under the philosophy. We couldn't do a, a, have a fight scene, but they couldn't have a Smallville-level fight scene because NBC slashed the crap out of their budget. And I think if they didn't screw up with villains, they wouldn't have been in that boat, and Redemption would have been a great plotline. And maybe revive the show if it did get kind of weak with the continuation of Ex- with the continuation of Generations with Exodus and the Fugitives episode. Nico, where where are you thinking with? Are you on board with that, or where, or do you think they should have done something else? I'm on board with that recommendation. The way they they ran the show was so confusing to a lot of people that they lost track of where the show was going, what was going on. It seemed out of sequence. So I think your reorganization of the plot line would have made a lot more sense to the the casual viewer and the more advanced viewer, such as yourself and myself. I would have liked it better the way you just described it as opposed to the way it actually came out. I, I think a lot of people would. I really do. And the other issue is they had a longer writing schedule than everybody else did. Because the strike with Heroes ended their season and they worked out their issues very quickly. So they went right back to work within a couple weeks. And that gave them almost an entire year to put a, to put this villain story arc together. So how, I don't know what that time... How could you screw up a show that bad? Most writers, they are begging for time, more time to write their episodes. And Heroes got it, and they still were a disappointment. And that's just, that's poor. That's really poor on those writers. And it goes more uh, to the whole thing with, what's NBC thinking? They've made some real boo-boos with their network in the past couple years. And I think Heroes was another thing. Actors from Heroes have come out. I know Zachary Quinto, who plays Siler, has come out. They complained that it was NBC's fault. I don't know. I think the writers had a lot to do with it, too. I think there's a lot of people to blame 
in this situation. And it's just sad the way that it ended because that first season was excellent. And it would have been a great step forward for the comic book superhero franchises. And it's a shame that this failed because it was a big help. And it would have brought that world to TV and maybe enhanced it. And also would have given us something to look forward to after Smallville ends at the end of this upcoming season. So it's just, it's a bummer. I'm sad that this show went the way it did and failed because that first season was great. I agree. So we're going to move on now to Dollhouse, the big Joss Whedon comeback that he was going to do with Fox. The summary is, they can be anyone you want. The Dollhouse is a very secret and very illegal place where wishes come true. Clients with the right connections and enough money can hire actives, people who have been programmed to perfectly fulfill the needs and desires of their clients. The actives are people who have chosen, for their own reasons, to surrender their bodies and minds for a five-year stay in the dollhouse. Now, they can be imprinted with any personality, skill, or even muscle memory. They can be the perfect companion, lover, spy, assassin, and when the job is done, they forget everything. And this is the thing with that summer. That's a lot of stuff to take in. It's a Dollhouse was a very complicated concept on how to as the show worked. And I think that might have been part of turning off people to the show. But again, it's just Whedon, and I think his audience is smart, and they should have come into it. Uh, I know that's an excuse as to why this show might have gotten canceled. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think the complication was the problem. But I do think, unlike Firefly, Joss missed the boat on this one. And, Nico, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain real quick how I think Joss missed the boat, and then if you want to go and add to that, I know you've got several theories about this show. Uh, sure. We'll do that. So first thing is, right off the bat, wiping Echo's personality every week up until about midway season two when they stopped that concept. I thought it was very hard to connect with her and hard to connect with the main character. Joss's shows in the past were always really great because they were all about connecting with the characters. And that strong connection made a lot of the characters people you wanted to root for. One character that comes to mind the most is probably Xander Harris on Buffy. I, he was the underdog... He was a character that didn't have any powers or anything special about him, but you wanted to get up and root for the guy when something great happened to him. And you wanted to scream and cheer, I mean, scream and freak out when something really horrible happened to him, like his run-in with Nathan Fillin's character Caleb on Buffy at the end of the last season. That was really crazy when he ripped his eyeball out. And you were just like, oh, my God, it's horrible. I love that character. And Joss has several more than that. You can name a whole bunch. There's Jade on Firefly, there's Mel Reynolds, which was played by Nathan Fillon. Those were just great characters that you wanted to root for, you wanted great things to happen, and that wasn't happening with Echo. The other issues, the other characters of the show, they weren't necessarily good guys. They had flaws about them. And really things that I think Buffy and Mel, Joss's former hero characters, would have fought against. It would have been would have not liked. So that was kind of weird, that gray area, especially when we didn't have a main character to follow and connect with. And then, Nico, you had a theory that at the beginning of Season 2, 
started with Echo giving weak, or I would say more boring personalities. Like there was that one episode where she got the personality of a mother and things like that, and you wanted it to be more kick-ass personalities like she had at the beginning of season one where she was like a hostage negotiator. I think she was a spy. There, there was a bunch of different things that she had that was much more violent and action-packed than I know you wanted to that. And then the other thing was it took too long to introduce the main character, which was, was Echo. Eventually, midway through season two, if you haven't seen it, Echo, basically all of her personalities go inside her head, and she basically develops her own personality. If you haven't seen Dollhouse, the way that works is each character is basically a doll, which means they're this basically mindless human being that is implanted with memories of other people. Hopefully you got that made that clear through the summary. And Echo, basically, she, she basically gets set free from the dolls for a period of time. And that doll-like person eventually ends up developing a personality and has all the personalities that was dumped inside of her head. So we had this character that was Echo, and I felt like she was a Buffy 2.0. She was a more mature version of Buffy. She had the heroic skills and abilities as Buffy, but she was less she was less of a teenage girl. She was a woman and she was a very strong woman and it would have been interesting where they would have went with her. And that was that was probably the biggest problem with the show. Nico, how do you think Joss might have missed the boat? Well, I think the biggest problem with this show was not necessarily with the show itself, but a little bit with the audience. And I'll explain that real quick. Loyal Joss fans such as yourself and myself love his work and will watch anything he puts on the screen because he's he's rewarded us in the past and we're loyal to his vision. Rightfully so, yes. Yes, and so he didn't have to play to us to get us to watch Dollhouse. He had to try and get the rest of the viewership to come and watch his show. Unfortunately... The first season is very much written to us, the loyal fans, who are going to sit through six episodes before we get any real action. And really, most people had, who are not Big Joss fans had tuned out. They were like, what is this crap? And right. that's unfortunate. Because I feel like season two, yes, we saw some weak personalities that ultimately made sense when we get to the finale. Yes, they did. Not really making much sense at the beginning of Season 2, but at least we have a overarching character to root for. We are rooting 100% for Echo. Because oh, yeah. she's, she's evolving, and she is becoming that character and not just the empty shell of a doll who changes every week to week. Yes, we rooted for her each episode in the activities she was partaking in. And the hostage negotiation one was definitely one of my favorite episodes of the first season. Yes. Minus Epitaph 1, which was not ever aired on network television. That was probably my favorite one. But that might be because I have a nerd yeah. crush on Felicia Day. Regardless, I really felt like point we're going to make in a second about what could have saved this show was the fact that 
if they had restructured it more towards the whole audience as opposed to just making the loyal fans happy, I think it would have been more successful on a grand scheme. But I'm not sure it would have been as much of a Joss Whedon show. So you have to kind of do a balancing act between those two medians. And I thought he did a, a fairly good attempt at at making both Fox happy and the loyal fans happy. But unfortunately, the pace of the show just was not conducive to everyone who was not a huge fan and would sit by on some weaker episodes to knowing that something better is coming. This, this is the thing with me for it, was that the dollhouse concept was very complicated to get I think that's one thing. And Joss, I I know a lot of Joss fans down at Columbia where I went to school, and a lot of them wanted to jump ship after episode six. That they weren't going to wait anymore. They were done. They stopped, they quit on it, and they left. And I I think the part of that is, Nico, you might have some other Joss friends of yours that you know that may have a different philosophy, but maybe for the audience more of my age that was in college, a lot of them wanted to jump ship. They thought it was too slow. And I think the reason why that was is Firefly, which is Jazz show that was wrongfully canceled by Fox. And I have some stuff about that uh, on an article I wrote on the blog post. That I felt like the first episode was very slow, but it explained everything in that first episode. And then right after that, we went right into the fun of the action. And I think Dollhouse should have done that sooner. I think they should have got out all the explanations out of the way and used those other personalities she had that they used episodes to describe. I think they should have maybe described those more in flashbacks or some other way that it would have made it move forward faster. I mean, I get why we needed all those episodes to set up the Echo character and all those personalities she has, which she becomes this, like, superhero midway through season two. But I, I think there's going to be something to be done to move it faster. I still think it was even too slow for Joss fans. Because Buffy, at least, there was action in every single one of those episodes of the first season. They were kind of slow, but there was action in every single one of those episodes. Dollhouse... I didn't feel like there was action in every single episode. I felt it was really ambiguous. And that was the thing. And I get Joss. Joss doesn't like to tailor to networks. He does not like to tailor to everybody. He's going to do what he wants, and that's how it is. But I think even Joss went too slow this time. And if, if you got if you got an argument to go against me with that, Nico, I would feel free to throw it out there. Yeah, a little bit. I think that the problem... Also, was for as you said, your your friends and yourself who are Josephine fans, you were looking for Buffy in the show. This wasn't Buffy; it was a completely different show, and it needed to be a different show. Unfortunately, some of the things that worked in Buffy were not going to work in this setup for the show. Having action should have been in every episode. There should have been more of a superhero feel, more of the episodes like 
the hostage negotiator, the one where they go into Rossum and fix the problem with the, the animals going crazy, and I think some people got imprinted yeah. in accidentally, that kind of stuff. That should have been the kind of action in every episode. Yes, there should have been. But it shouldn't have been like Buffy where each episode can stand on its own. There needs to be... there need, This was a more complicated story and it needed to build on every episode. Whereas Buffy, yes, there was an overarching story arc, but every episode could stand on its own in a sense if you looked at it. I think the way Dollhouse was set up, that was not going to work in this situation. So I think a lot of the problem was the Joss fans who jumped ship were looking for Firefly or Buffy or Angel in the show and weren't finding it and were angry. I know that's not necessarily your problem with the show per se, but I think a lot of people like you and myself felt that way and that's why he didn't even hold on to all of his fans on this show. Now, I do think, I think Firefly, unlike Buffy, I thought that was more of a complicated, overarching story. I mean, I know they only got 15 episodes, but I think if it would have kept going, it would have gotten more complicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not saying that that Firefly was not complicated. The the characters were very well-developed and complex, and you couldn't do that same thing in Dollhouse because... Yes, Ballard was a real person until the very end. Spoiler alert. (laughs) The Rossum employees were real people, or we thought, until, again, spoiler alert. You know, so some of those characters could be those really in-depth characters that we love from Joss Whedon stories. But the actives could not be. And that was, was what you were saying was the main problem but I saw it as an opportunity, and I think that's what he was trying to do, was make it an opportunity to write something completely different. Unfortunately, a lot of us were looking for the shows that we loved. And I'm not saying that Dollhouse was ne- necessarily the most complicated, but I think it was the most challenging for him as well, and the most challenging to keep up with for the viewer, that maybe that was the real problem. This is the thing with it. It goes to a debate that a lot of people within television or film have, which is between being an artist or entertaining an audience. I fall underneath the camp of entertaining an audience. When I write a script or I write anything for a school project, I focus on what I can do to entertain an audience or make them enjoy it or make them laugh. And I will cut things out that is me experimenting because I, I I don't like people not liking my work. I really don't. I can take criticism and things, but I want to try as hard as I can to entertain an audience. And Joss, to a certain extent, I think he agrees with that. But I think now he's at a point that he's getting tired of writing Buffy and, and those kind of superhero stories that everyone can connect with. You know, he wants to experiment. And Josh, he, he is a creative genius. He really is. He's He's... I would say up there with names. Now, again, he's kind of fallen to the wayside now. But he's up there with, like, George Lucas, who really tried to experiment. 
with story stuff, or, I mean, more so special effects. And then Stan Lee, to really revolutionize the comic book industry in the 60s. I think, and they pushed the envelope on things. And I think Joss is that type of person. But I think this, maybe experimenting went too far. And he tried to do this artistic story based on his artistic knowledge. I kind of went with what he wanted to do creatively instead of what the audience was looking for. And with TV and where it's going and the fact that it's transferred to the internet and stuff, you need to really try to get as many viewers as you can. Because you have people watching it on so many different sources. So if Jeff maybe would have tried this experiment five or six years ago, it might have worked. But with the introduction of the internet and stuff like that, the way you have to write TV now is trying to get as many audiences as possible instead of trying to fulfill your artistic desire and show your personality, your image. And it's sad that TV's going that way, but that's what you got to do to make a success. And I think what Joss could have done, because I think the second half of season two was when that show really picked up, and it could have kept it on the air if it just happened sooner. I think what they should have done, they should have had the season one finale be the mid-season finale. And that episode, if you haven't seen it, it's when Alpha, who's one of the big villains on Dollhouse, he's kind of the spike of Dollhouse. That's the best way to explain it. He dumps a whole crap load of personalities in Echo's head at once. And this kind of creates this whole concept of Echo, the, the human shell, being able to form a personality and retain all the personalities she had before. This is kind of what causes the glitch. And I think that would have been a great mid-season finale. But that would have taken care of it because you had about six episodes to explain this idea that several personalities have been downloaded into Echo's head. And that would have totally made sense. And then I think what you should have done for the season finale is have the Senator Parentu episode. That was um, Alexei Denisov, who was known as Wesley on Angel. He came in and did an episode where he was a senator, who actually turned out to be one of the dolls at the dollhouse. I think that should have been the finale, because that was the turning point when Echo started developing a personality. And I think it would have been cool if season two started with that three-year jump where Echo runs into Ballard and Ballard teaches her almost how to become a human. I think that would have been a great way to start season two. And then that way, I think the episode of Love Supreme, this is when Alpha comes back to get revenge on Echo. And actually, he causes Ballard to... How, Nico, how would you explain it? What, what exactly do you think he does to Ballard? I think he imprints Ballard with a imprint over his normal psyche without installing the architecture necessary to be able to be imprinted as a doll. So he ends up really frying a lot of Ballard's brain structure, and Topher has to, really, he has to turn him into a doll by installing the, the architecture and then installing his personality over that architecture and making him essentially a permanent doll of himself. That's what Alpha ended up doing was he fried Ballard's normal brain structure and Topher had to rebuild it as active architecture in his brain. Basically, putting it simply, Ballard was put in a coma and that meant that he and Echo could not be together. Yeah. Which is a, a trademark Joss Whedon move. And I felt that this was the episode that left it like the episode called Innocence 
during Buffy season two, where Angel became Angelus, he basically went evil, and he and Buffy couldn't be together. And the emotions I felt during that episode, I felt during A Love Supreme. And I think if that would have happened sooner, he would have kept his fans and maybe picked up a bigger audience because I, the critics really enjoyed that episode. And I think if that word got out midway through season two, people would have jumped right on board. Also, that is perfectly in line with how Joss did things with Buffy, how he structured it. Basically, Buffy season one is okay. It's basically establishing the idea for the 12 episodes of that season that Buffy is a person who battles vampires of the supernatural. That's what it was. And then in the season finale, there's kind of a game changer. And it shows that life as a high school kid slaying vampires is not all fun and games. And it, it twisted the story. And then we really realized how much that how challenging Buffy's life was when Innocence came. And I think Dollhouse showed us how tough it was to be Echo with the Love Supreme episodes. I think if that would have happened sooner, this thing would still be on the air. What do you I think? have to agree with that. I, I would definitely have to agree that if it had moved faster, like we've been uh, proposing, things would have gotten interesting for more people. The character, you know, the people who need the love story, the, that would have t- been taken. I think we're going to talk about that in a second. The people who need more action, there definitely would have been enough action for them. The people who want a complex story, well, they're happy because they got a complex story already. But there's a, a wide variety of people out there, and they're always looking for certain things in their TV viewing experience. Uh, experience. Some want to be able to escape into fantasy. Some want the romance. Some want a show that makes you think. Some want a show that makes you think and discuss with your friends. They want that social experience. Some just want to laugh. And if you can incorporate all those audiences into a single show, you're going to have a show that's going to be top of the rankings. Everybody's going to be talking about it. People are going to enjoy it. And if we if we had seen a little bit more of that in this show, I think it could have potentially made a five-year run like it was originally scheduled to. I, I think we did. I think we saw it starting from the episode with the Senator Perry character of Public Eye. I think that episode, once that episode came on, Joss did that. And he proved that he can be an artist, and do something for everybody. Right. So I feel like what he should have done is he should have got his artist juices out of his system in the first six episodes. And they jumped into things. Because for the longest time, people were thinking, oh, Joss is being, being an artist. He just wants to experiment. And I'm not really a fan of that. Yeah, definitely. If he jumped in and started, like you suggested, making... The public eye, the mid-series premiere, you know, when they came back from break, and jumped into season two story arc to finish up, maybe make the first two seasons the first season, and have all of that happen. It might have felt a little rushed, and that's, I think, where he made the decision to extend it a little bit. It might have been a little bit too rushed, 
but I think it would have been better and we would have kept more viewers and we would have stayed out of the dreaded one and two million viewers and would have been more up in the, the six, seven, maybe even topping out near the tens, which would have kept it running for sure. I agree with that. And it was on a good night. It was on Friday night and the Smallville fans easily could have just switched over to this show. And I, it, it's, it's sad that it didn't work out because I think it would have really been a big hit on Friday night. I, I would, I would disagree with that. I think it was on a bad night. I okay. think if it was on a different night, it also would have had a, a better chance at capturing some of the younger, not younger like teenage, but the younger adult demographic, which is, you know, that 18 to, to 35 or 18 to 40 males for sure. But 18 to 40 demographic is, is the one that advertisers are really excited about. And they pay the big money for shows to capture that attention. Friday night, a lot of those people are not watching first-run television. They're out having a good time with friends. They're out with dinner parties. They're out at the bars. They're, Friday night's a very tough night. When X-Files got moved to Friday night, it took a serious hit. And it was one of the top shows on television at the time. I, I don't remember what its first night was. I was you know, much younger at that time, and my parents and I watched it. It may have been on Friday night all the time. I, I'm not entirely right. sure. But I know that Friday night, when it changed slots, it, it took a hit. Now, real quick on that, do you think that Joss took things slow at Dollhouse because of the incident that happened with the train job? And if you don't know what the train job is, real quick, people listening, type in Firefly Train Job. It was a Firefly episode that was designed as another version of the pilot because Fox felt that Joss's original pilot for Firefly was too slow. Do you think that played a part in why Dollhouse went so slow? Potentially. Now, The Train Job is my second favorite episode of Firefly. My, my favorite being the ballroom one. I forget, I forget what they call it, but uh, where where Mal and Nara end up dancing right. at the, the ball, and then the duel. I think that, yes, Dollhouse may have been slow for that reason, but it almost makes it seem like he should have gone faster on Dollhouse if he was learning from that mistake with Firefly or perceived mistake, because the original, tra uh, original pilot of Firefly, if you watch it in the order that Joss originally intended, which is the order they have it on the DVD sets, it's excellent, and it, it makes total sense. Right. If you watch it with the train job first, and then jump back, and it, it's it's still good, but it's not as good as, as planned. So you would have thought that Joss would have maybe started faster had he been thinking, oh, Fox didn't like it last time. And if you remember in the lead-up to Dollhouse, Fox saw the original pilot and were, was not happy. And there was a major reshoot of that pilot. So I don't know what, what could have maybe made that pilot better, but apparently Fox and Joss once again did not see eye-to-eye. Eye. Right. The last segment kind of with this is things that would have kept Dollhouse on the air if it moved faster. And what I wrote down was I said that the introduction of the DC Dollhouse, basically which caused a 
love relationship between Summer Glau's character on the show, who's known as who is River on Fireplay and also Cameron on Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Watch that show. That is a very high, hard title to pronounce. I had a teacher that always kept screwing it up. But that introduction of that character really helped Topher's character gave him a love story. And then we also had the love story between Ballard and Echo, which we got into a little bit before. And then we also had the relationship between two of the dolls, Victor and Sarah. That was interesting. And Nico, you were going to say that the love story was one of the things that would kept it on. Do you want to continue with that theory? Absolutely. Uh, I'm I'm a sucker for love stories. I always have been. I'm a hopeless romantic. It's all Disney's fault because they gave me unrealistic expectations of love. But oh, that's a Facebook group if you uh, want to check it out. Ballard and Echo. I really didn't see this particular love story coming at first. Uh, in the first maybe seven, eight, nine episodes, I didn't see it coming. So when it actually made that switch, I I liked it. It was it's rare that I, I totally get fooled by something like that in television anymore that I don't see something coming. This the Victor and Sierra relationship was interesting because it showed that this thing with Echo and Alpha, where they're developing a personality, was not totally exclusive to them. They were unique because theirs was so much more advanced, but this clustering and holding on to some of the past profiles or holding on to a little bit of your original personality, despite being a doll, was a really interesting move on Josh's part, and I really thought that was the real love story for at least the first season and a half. And that was interesting to see that development. And I think it was interesting in the finale, if you watched, that they had fallen in love, had a kid, but Victor had sacrificed that love to fight for fight the uh, Rossum group, and he had become a tech head, which obviously Sierra did not like and wanted to keep their son away from. But in the end, she realized he was he loved them so their their love story was probably the best love story even though everybody is probably rooting for the Ballard and Echo one the most because bigger bigger actors bigger stars more the main characters of the show we always want to see the main characters find love yeah or at least I do and that's why we saw the Ballard and Echo storyline kind of go that way I like the fact that Joss is notorious for making us want a love story to happen and then screwing it up for us. That's his (laughs) trademark. It is his trademark. And that's why the Bennett-Topher relationship and the Ballard-Echo relationship and the Victor-Sierra relationship all had aspects of that in it. And also, Joss does a really great job of the secondary romances on his shows being really good. Which is, and examples of that would be Xander and Willow. Then Willow and Tara later on put that show. I would say another great romance was was the whole Fred love triangle with Gunn and Wesley on Angel. And then I would say Zoe and Wash 
were the pretty good. That was a really great secondary relationship on that show. And then Victor and Sierra also with this. So it's amazing how Josh really does a great. Well, also, don't forget Kaylee and the Doctor. Yes, Kaylee and the Doctor as well. He just yeah, does uh, a great job with the supporting characters and relationships. Absolutely. Uh, were you going to say something else? I didn't else mean to cut you off. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna say what else are you gonna say there? Oh um, no, I was just I just wanted to jump in and, and, and remind you of a couple others. Seth Green's character and Willow yes. on Buffy, which was the was if I'm not mistaken Willow's first love yes. story because the her and Xander being like best friends, there were a little bit of sexual tension there. That didn't come until later, right? No, she cheated on him. Uh, Seth Green's character. With Zander? Yes. Okay. Because Cordelia and him found out together. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. And uh, that episode also involved Spike and, and Buffy. And that, that kind of goes to my last thing is I think Elfo was going to become a Spike character. I think he was going to be a character that was going to be a villain and become a good guy based on what we saw in the series finale. Epitaph 2, which was basically a 10-year jump between the second to the last episode and the last episode. I almost want to say that he did become that character, not that he would become yeah. that character. Because we saw him come back, and he was well-adjusted, and was fighting the good fight, and helping out. And yes, he went off on his own to, to find himself and, and fix his psychosis, but ultimately came back to help. And I think that's definitely a a spikish character. And that's like my last question here. We're going to answer this real quick. If the show stayed on for the planned five seasons, do you think that Epitaph 2 would have still been the series finale? I say yes. Just knowing Joss, I know he likes to wrap up stories, and I know how he writes things he likes to have an end in mind. So I say yes, that's what Epitaph 2 is supposed to be. Nico, what do you think? I'm kind of mixed on this. I think it's an excellent, excellent ending to the series and to the show, and it would have wrapped everything up nice. But I almost think that maybe it would have been like a season three ender, and season four would have been a whole season four and five would have been a whole new bag of awesomeness. <laughs> you know, yeah. it could it could have been like a mid series finale. So. You, you wrap it up in the first three seasons and jump into a, a continuation, but kind of a new storyline. And that would have given us some really interesting, like, information. But I think the finality of it ultimately would have made it the best to be used as a season and series finale. That's a very interesting point. Uh, I was going to say yes, but that, that's a great addition to kind of what I was thinking, whatever. I think that'll give something good for all of you viewers out there to think of. Now we're going to move on to kind of another show that messed with your head a little bit. I think it would have more if the show would have kept going, but it was canceled a couple weeks ago. This is ABC's Flash Forward. The summary for the show is, dubbed ABC's companion series to Lost, Flash Forward is based on Robert J. Sawyer's sci-fi novel of the same name. The plot centers around a theory, chaotic vision of the future after a mysterious event makes everyone on Earth lose consciousness. 
later, as the people start waking up, the world starts changing because people know their future. And why it got canceled? I'm going to tell an interesting story about me watching the show. I started out with Flashport. I did not watch the show. I have a thing kind of against, after seeing Day After Tomorrow, against kind of these natural disaster type movies and things like that. So when I saw this show is going to be about a bunch of people blacking out and the crisis that happened, I went, oh great, it's a disaster movie for a TV series. And then Nico watched Flash Forward, a couple other my friends watched it, thought it was really great, really excited, just me to watch it. So through a combination of Hulu and DVR recordings, I went and watched the first ten episodes all in a row. And I was, I loved it at first. I was floored. I was really excited. And I felt it was as intense as 24 in the earlier seasons, which I really enjoyed. I was like, this is great. This is the the next step after 24. I'm really into this. And those first eight episodes was great. And these shocking revelations, they had at least one or two in every episode. And they had a huge one in episode five, where the FBI agent Al, Al Gao who was played by the same guy who was Cyborg on Smallville, when he killed himself to try to prevent people's visions that they had in their flash forwards happening. Those those episodes both floored me, and I was like, wow, this is great. And then I hit episode 9, which was entitled Believe, and it was a really boring episode. And the thing is, Nico thought it was a great episode. And it was. It was a very good episode. But the fact that we had these shocking revelations in the first eight episodes, and then we had something that was slower, a love story episode, it was almost like the episode felt like a huge letdown because we wanted more of the intensity. And that's what got me connected to the show and got a lot of other viewers. So when this came on, people were really let down by the episode because they're like, where's the intensity? Where's another shocker? I need to see one. And in my mind, it was like, oh, they're just going to do one slow episode then they'll get right back on the horse with the intensity. And that didn't happen so much. The episodes coming back from the mid-season finale were a lot slower, and I think people needing to have this huge shocker in every episode, which Flash Forward kind of started with coming out of the gate, I think it's what killed the show. I think it's what hurt it. Anika, where are you with that whole theory I'm throwing out there? In the, in the summary, you said... This was dubbed ABC's companion series to Lost. Yes. We have talked about this extensively. The problem with this show was they didn't focus on the characters enough. Lost right. is a character-driven show. Yes, it had the mysteries that intensified that, and it had the unusual storytelling of flash-forwards, flashbacks, Flash sideways even in the in the f- final season. Yes. The problem with Flash Forward was the reason that you liked it and got hooked in those first eight episodes was it was wham, bam, wham, bam, wham, bam. Action, action, action. That is not the way that Lost went. If you watched Lost, you will realize that the first two or three seasons take place in a matter of 45 real days. Right. This is taking place over months, but it's like wham, bam, one after another action sequences, and it's going too fast. There was no character development. We 
maybe found a couple characters that we wanted to root against, you know, some bad guys or people that we saw as bad guys, we did not really connect with any major characters. And ultimately, I don't know about you, but the persons that I found that I connected the most with were Janice and John Cho's character, Agent No. Yes. So... They're not even the main characters. Yes, they're important characters, but they're not Mark, Agent Benford. The they're not Olivia yeah. Benford. They're not Simcoe. And they're not Simon. Was it Simon? Simon. Yeah. Simon got interesting at the end. Oh, absolutely. I don't want to take that away. We, we talked about it on the blog that, okay. that we, they, they did start to do character-centric episodes later on. The problem was they needed to start that from the beginning so that everybody got really drawn into those characters. Yes, the first episode was great and the action in it was necessary. Maybe even the first three episodes to get us really hooked in. But then we needed to slow it down a little bit and get sucked into the characters. And then you can ramp it up and hit some really hard-hitting action sequences that really reveal some of the story and drive the plot forward. Driving the plot forward was not an issue in this show. This was not moving too slowly like we were talking about with Dollhouse. This was moving way too fast. As one of my friends says, whoa, pump the brakes there. We were getting too much information. There wasn't enough mystery. Episode 5 would happen. There'd be some mystery that was going to be bring the viewer in and then in the first five minutes of episode six it's answered that is not the way that you build momentum in a show or interest in a show when you're answering the questions too fast there's no time for people like us to propose solutions or really come up with crackpot theories and that's what made Lost so amazing was that social interaction of the show where you would watch a show, your mind would be blown, and you would have to call a friend and say, did you see Lost? And they'd be like, yes! And you'd talk for half an hour about what you thought it meant because it was so awesome and so there were so many things going on that you couldn't figure it all out yourself. You had to interact with someone else. If Flash Forward's going to be that amazing show that was going to take the place of Lost, it needed to tell the story similar to Lost. It, it wasn't going to be Lost. Nothing's going to be Lost again. Because the next show like Lost is going to be something completely different that revolutionizes television like Lost revolutionized television. If you try and write a story that is Lost but with a different storyline... You're, you're probably going to fail. And I think that that might have been what happened to Flash Forward was they tried to do Lost again, but with a different storyline, but didn't learn the lessons that Lost taught about story development, character development, and the interaction of the public. So that's my take on why I felt Flash Forward essentially failed. I got two notes piggybacking on that. One is, I had a teacher of mine tell me what the script I was writing. He said to me, he said, 
what's going to make your script good, uh, what everyone needs to do when writing a script, is that in that first act or the beginning of the show, which it, in my case, the first act for TV is the entire first season. That's that's kind of what I go with. And my teacher always said, within act one, you've got to ask, well, the more questions you have, the better the story will be. Because people are going to be interested in how these questions are going to be answered. So that's how you keep them interested in the show, is creating questions. And really what Flash Forward could have done in the first season was just cre- keep creating more and more questions. But also, they need to have an idea in mind and how to wrap it up. And that's why Lost kept going. Lost created a lot of questions. And people's interest in how these questions would be answered got them to watch. And I think that's what happened with Flash Forward. And I think the biggest episode that caused this problem was the episode Revelation Zero. And that was a two-hour premiere episode after the mid-season finale. Because very quickly they revealed who D. Gibbons was, which was a story arc that was going on the first ten episodes of who this guy was, and I thought would take the entire season. And then they revealed who Suspect Zero was, which ended up being Simon, and he was the only person awake during the flash forward. And so the fact that they gave that away was just really kind of disappointing. So that was that. And then with the characters, I think that Simon, later on, Dimitri, and Janice were interesting characters because they did have these character study episodes like Lost had. And I think that goes into kind of one of the points why it, how it could have stayed on the air is if it had more of the character study episodes. And less of the weak characters like Simcoe, who got really lame and has a really bad dialogue. I can't remember what episode number it was or the title, but there's an episode where Simcoe had a really cheesy pickup line about a night when he was talking to Olivia, and that was really annoying. And then Olivia's character just got annoying, especially when the, the Gabriel character, played by James Callas from uh, Battlestar Galactica fame, he was Baltar on that show. When he, he broke into her house in one episode, and she started crying and freaking out. And I think if most people, if someone was in their house, they would try to nail the guy or hit him instead of, like, freaking out and crying and freezing up. Yeah. I just thought that was really, really lame. And I wrote kind of here, maybe as a joking thing, but maybe as an actual theory that could work, would killing off Simcoe or one of these stupid characters would have kept the flash forward on the air. I think the Simcoe one... It would have been hard to sell because he was supposed to be such an important part in figuring out how to prevent the the, the next flash forward. But I think Simon could have stepped into those shoes, and he's the real genius. Simcoe was kind of just the uh, mentor to the genius. So I think, yes, he could have died, and that would have uh, fixed the Olivia and Mark tension. Although that tension was probably necessary for driving the story forward and putting Mark into the position that he ultimately needed to be in. Yeah, I think you could have put Mark in that position and then got rid of Simcoe after that. I agree. I totally agree with that. P.S., the episode you were talking about was Let No Man Put Asunder, and it was episode 16, where he compares himself to Lancelot. Yes. And her to Guinevere, and... She even calls him out on that as being super cheesy. But I, when they kissed in that episode, I yelled 
you stupid slut at her at on the television show, which is amazing because I absolutely love that actress on on Lost, and I'm looking for her name real quick. Do you remember her name? Is it is it Sonia something? Yes, yes, yeah, Sonia Walger. So yeah, uh, and she played Penny on Lost, and I loved her, absolutely loved her as as Penny on Lost. Absolutely hated her as Olivia, and maybe that was the point of the writers, but I I just could not stand her, and I just exploded and yelled at my TV, which is. I'm not going to say the first time I've ever done it, but it's not a normal reaction for me for television. So we just need to get uh, Cassidy Freeman or Anna Torv in a role like Penny, and maybe we'll actually like them. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Or maybe we should just get rid of all three of those from our shows, <laughs> and I'll like them a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, maybe that, too. The other last final thing about it that would have kept it on the air is Flash Forward started out kind of in a real-time format. Not like 24, where each episode was an hour and one day. It wasn't like that, but they basically set, originally, at least my understanding, that the finale of Flash Forward was actually supposed to take place on April 29th, which was the day that everyone saw in their Flash Forwards and during the pilot. And that went out the window... Because the show's ratings went down, and ABC decided to bench the show until March, when it was originally designed to come back, I think in January or February. And I that really got me connected with the show. I know it's kind of a dumb gimmick, but I really liked it that it was connecting with real time and setting up, and it kind of added this anticipation to the actual second supposed blackout. It actually did happen, spoiler alert. It added this anticipation to it and this intensity to the plot line that was really great. And when that was gone, I think it took me out of the show. I have to agree with that. You and I had that conversation that it was really poor on ABC's part because it wasn't necessarily the the writers or the, the showrunner who screwed this up. This was definitely on the part of the network. And when a network makes a decision like that, they're essentially sealing the fate of a show because they're screwing up the timeline. They're expecting us... We've already suspended our disbelief to a certain extent. There's a there's quite a bit of sci-fi in this show. We've suspended our disbelief. When you ask us, ask us later in the, in the series to once again completely suspend our disbelief by throwing the timeline out the window and pushing things back three weeks... That just adds to our being drawn out of the story. Like you said, it drew you out of the story and it, it ruined, well, not ruined, but it, it, it started to ruin, to ruin the show for you. And that's unfortunate that the network caused that problem. Totally with you on that. Now we're going to move on to our discussion, our first discussion in our series of blockbuster movies that we're going to be talking about this summer, Iron Man 2. start us out with the summary sure billionaire tony stark must contend with deadly issues involving the government his own friends 
as well as new enemies due to his superhero alter ego, Iron Man. And the first thing right off the bat with this movie, a lot of people like to come to me and talk to me about superhero films. That's kind of my thing, as I said in the previous episode, and as you can read in my introduction. At our website, acrossairways.com, if you haven't checked it out yet. Wanted to plug that because I haven't yet this episode. But the main issue with Iron Man was audience, audiences wanted more action in this movie. And I don't agree with this. I really thought that Iron Man was a very good character study of Tony Stark. And I like superhero comic book movies that get into the character's head. Sometimes they just make up these big blockbuster action shoot 'em up movies, and they don't go inside what's going on with these characters and what makes them tick. And I think superheroes are most interesting when you see them having problems like we do, or having problems like people in our culture do. That's why I enjoyed this movie. I thought it was good. So I, I just don't get this more action thing. Because if that would have happened, people would have been complaining about it. They would have said it's X-Men 3. And the reason why I use X-Men 3 as a reference is I am a huge fan of the character of Jean Grey slash Phoenix and that whole story arc with her, the Phoenix saga. And I love that story because it's about a person doing something really evil and coming to terms with that. And all of us, and I think everyone can connect to that because everyone's made mistakes in their lives. Everyone screwed up and had to redeem themselves. Now, they didn't do it on the level that Jean Grey as Phoenix did, which she blew up an entire planet filled with people. No one's done something that bad, but this idea of making up for your mistakes and making a heroic sacrifice to make it better, that's a great story. It's a great thing, and they didn't do that in X-Men 3. So I think if you would have just made this Tony Stark fighting this evil guy in an iron suit, we wouldn't have cared about it. But the fact that you made it about this celebrity that went on a downfall and tried to clean up his act is a really... Good thing. And actually, the film's lead actor, Robert Downey Jr., went through that process in real life, where he's a big-time actor, he got on drugs, he went downhill, and then he came back up with the release of Tropic Thunder and Iron Man. And then he did Sherlock Holmes and some other movies. So I thought it was great that they went for that story and that plot line. And I felt it was a Tony Stark story, not an Iron Man story. And that's the way it should be, because I think when heroes you were talking about before, I think when that was the strongest was when they realized it wasn't a show about superpowered people fighting each other. It was a show about regular people who just happened to have superpowers. Now, this movie was about a regular, somewhat regular guy named Tony Stark who happens to have this suit of armor that lets him fly around and fight people. So, Nico, where were you on the action thing? Was that a problem for you with this movie? It absolutely was not. I enjoyed this movie as well. I I felt that if you look at Star Wars, which is my favorite series of all time, you had much more action in the first episode, and I'm not talking about Phantom Menace. I'm talking about the original first episode. It's episode 4 a new for hope. you people who aren't up to date with things. Yes. Episode 4, A New Hope. A <laughs> lot more action. They blow up a Death Star at the end. Come on. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. But if you look at it from a storytelling point of view, Episode 5, Empire Strikes Back, is the best storytelling in the entire six episodes. Oh, yes. By far, it is the best 
character driven, best plot driven, best movie out of the series. My favorite is A New Hope, but Empire Strikes Back is the better story. I think Iron Man is on the way to doing the same thing. The first movie was excellent, had a ton of action, was really interesting, really kicked the, the franchise off. And the second episode, the new Iron Man 2, was definitely more character-driven. We saw Tony Stark. We saw a little bit of his alcoholism. We saw the, the problems he was having with Pepper, the, the fact that he's a womanizer, that he doesn't really follow through with his business plans and everything like that. He kind of just pawned that off on Pepper by making her the new CEO, so he didn't have to deal with it. So we're really kind of getting an idea of who Tony is, but then we also see who he wants to be, who screwed this up. This was definitely... And I thought that that human aspect of him, forget the superhero part, the human aspect of, of Tony Stark was so great in this movie. Now, I'm not saying this was the, this is anywhere near Empire Strikes Back in the quality of a film or even storytelling, but it had that kind of feel that it was trying to progress the story and characters of the, the main characters and kind of give us a, a more human feel for these characters, make them more organic than just on the page or on the screen character. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed the way that it worked. Well, this Empire Strikes Back theory you've got is very interesting because this movie, I Empire Strikes Back is a movie where, it, and it doesn't make it confusing, but all the characters are going in separate directions. You had Han and Leia, and they were kind of doing their thing, flying in space. You had Vader and his thing going on, and you had Luke Skywalker and his deal with Yoda on Dagobah. And I thought Iron Man was like that, too. You know, you had the Justin Hammer character and the Mickey Rourke thing going on in one side. You had kind of Tony's friends, especially Rhodey, and their kind of reaction to what Tony was doing. And then you had where Tony was going from. And that, I, I like that. It wasn't too jumbled. And I know everyone will say, well, you know, Spider-Man 3, that was jumbled. But this is the thing. Spider-Man 3 had a major character change happened with Spider-Man due to the black suit. This storyline kept Tony Stark the same. His character didn't change at all from the first movie. And so I think that's what made it work. Also, the villains were set up to work together. It wasn't like, oh, I hate Spider-Man and you hate Spider-Man, so let's go get him. This was, okay, yes, we both hate Tony Stark, but I need you to build the suits so I can stop this guy. And that worked. And we'll get more to the villains as... We go down through some of our discussion points. And the other thing about the story was, this is a typical Iron Man story. I don't know how many of you read Iron Man comics. It's not, he wasn't a very popular character until that last movie came out. But the Iron Man comic right now is really good. The Iron Man comic back in the 60s and 70s was really good. They had a storyline called Demon in the Bottle, which is very similar to Iron Man 2. And I heard they may play it up a little bit more in 3. If, if that comes out. I'm not sure of the whole situation with that third movie. It's getting worked out right now. But typical Iron Man story is Tony Stark has a personal or heart issue that makes him self-destructive. 
which we saw in this movie when he got in that race car. The second thing is, the bad guys try to use that to their advantage to get inside Tony's head. Which I think happened with Justin Hammer helping the government build War Machine. And I think it happened with Mickey Rourke's character, Whiplash, having that whole scene with him in the jail. Where he's, where he's talking about kind of what the theme of the movie was seeing a god bleed. And once someone saw a god bleed, everyone would go after him. Which I think happened with that. Then you have Tony fixing the personal and heart problem. Which I think he did by going to Pepper's office. I know it kind of failed, but he tried. And then he made the vibranium to fix his heart. And made that new heart system. And then after that, once he's got everything that worked out, he goes in and defeats the bad guy. And that's how Iron Man comics work. So I don't know with this movie if they were expecting a Spider-Man comic or a Batman comic or one of those other formats. But Iron Man comics, that's how it works. So... John Favreau did nothing wrong with the structure of this movie or anything. It was exactly what it should have been. I have good. to totally agree with that. I think John Favreau is an excellent director, an excellent producer and writer, and he used to be a decent actor. I think he's funny in his walls. He puts him. He's he's mostly behind the camera now, but he's right. he's like a little bit hitch like Hitchcock, where he puts himself in a small role. Tarantino does it as well. Sometimes Tarantino's the star of his movies that he writes, but usually when he's directing, he is only in an, a bit role. But I, I think John Favreau kind of does that too now on shows or movies that he's directing. He kind of throws himself in as as a side character, and that kind of goes back to his giving himself a little bit of actor cred still. But I think he's an excellent director, and I think he hit this one right on the nail right on the head because it's exactly like you were saying he followed the proper format he did exactly what needed to be done and tell a good story people who are looking for the action i think are are not true iron man fans such as yourself who've read the comics who have really studied the format and and are in love with that character for the way his stories are told, they're looking more for Iron Man 1 was awesome because it was full of action and really excited me. I want that same experience. Well, if you want that same experience, go watch the first one again. Don't don't expect this movie to be exactly the same as the first one. If it is, then the rest of us would be bored out of our mind. So I think he did an excellent job of mixing a little bit of action and... There was not any any way you could say this didn't have any action in it. There were quite a few action scenes. There were quite a few CG efforts that looked awesome. So if you're looking at this movie and say, oh, there wasn't enough action, well, go watch the first one again because that's what you're looking for. If you want to see a little more development of the Iron Man character and the Tony Stark character and all the secondary characters, then come watch the Iron Man 2 movie because that's what this movie is all about. And this movie, it did fine money-wise. It did very well. It got oh, yeah. the comic book fans coming, got them to see it, and no one's dogging it. Spider-Man 3 got dogged. X-Men 3 got dogged. No one's dogging this movie. Comic book fans yeah. are happy with it. And that's what they should do. And that's their market. And that market is huge. It's huge. There, There's less people that are into it than not. And honestly, I'll tell you right now, if Iron Man 3 comes out, 
the numbers will be great. All those people that complain about Teal still go see it. And it rightfully should be because John Favreau did a good job. Plus, you've got this little tantalizing thing called the Avengers movie that are coming out. And people are going to want to see how things are connected. So they're going to go see another Iron Man, hands down. And the other thing is Robert Downey Jr. is great. I think he's so good as Tony Stark Iron Man. What do you think, Nico? Is he still the guy to play Iron Man, Tony Stark? I think since his recovery a few years ago, he did some. I think he did some jail time too, or at least forced rehab, confined rehab, whatever you want to call it. Right. I I think that the movies he's been putting out since that time have been even better than his pre-drug era stuff. Yeah. So not the the stuff he was putting out while he was on drugs or, you know, some of that was actually pretty good stuff too. Just showing the, the, the abilities, nat, natural raw ability of this really good actor. Yeah. I enjoy him in almost everything I've seen him in. And I think he is an excellent choice for, as you said, Iron Man, because Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. have very similar life stories. So he gets to play himself, in a sense, a little over-the-top himself, but he gets to play himself in Tony Stark. And I think he he nails it. Yeah. Just nails it. I think he's great. And he does, in all of his movies, I just recently watched Sherlock Holmes last weekend, and in all of his movies, he does little physical things. Or little things to make his character likable. For example, like in Sherlock Holmes, he, he's kind of got a Captain Jack Sparrow vibe to him. Where he's stumbling around, and just how he does things is funny. It makes me laugh. And it's like, I like this guy. He's, he's cool. I like sitting and watching him for two hours. Because he does these little physical things. Another scene in Iron Man 2 that did it, and it was hilarious. I was dying laughing, was when he's in Pepper's office. And he walks in with the strawberries. The Pepper's like, I'm allergic to strawberries, which was funny. And then they had that little sculpture or whatever that was moving around on Pepper's desk, and the thing was driving him crazy. And you know that's a thing that on set, that might have been just some prop piece, and he had to react to it on set and really set up something funny about it. So it's really cool how he can take things and just take things on the page and add something physical to it to make it better, or improve it, or to make add a little bit of humor to a certain scene, or add a little bit of Tony Stark to a scene, and that whole thing where he was just annoyed with how this sculpture worked, that's not in the comics, that's never been in a comic book. He just applied his own knowledge and his own acting ability to that, and I, I think it's great. I enjoy watching him. He's worth going to see. He's on my list right up there with, I know we've, our favorites are Harrison Ford and Nathan Fillon. He's right up there with me on that list. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to agree with that. And continuing with actors, uh, there was a change in one of the characters. I know people really hate that because of continuity. I think this would work. But Jim Rhodes, also known as Rhodey to comic book fans, that's Iron Man's buddy who became War Machine in the movie. He was replaced. He was originally Terrence Howard in the first movie. He was replaced by Don Cheadle. I like the switch to Don Cheadle in this movie. Nico, how about you? I absolutely love Don Cheadle as War Machine or Rhodey. Terrence Howard 
is a good actor, and that was his problem. Don Cheadle's a great actor, too, don't get yeah. me wrong. But Terrence Howard was trying to outact Robert Downey Jr. in the first movie. In my opinion, he tried to steal the show. That's not the point of Rhodey. He is not supposed to be the center of the uh, scene when he's in the scene. No, he is the secondary character, or he's the buddy character, the the sidekick character in the in that movie. And he was trying to outact Downey. Don Cheadle played it straight. Downey Jr. is huge. He plays this huge character, and he he plays it funny. He plays it off the wall in some scenes. And Don Cheadle plays Rhodey straight. He needs to be that straight man to the funny man in the in the duo. And I think that Terrence Howard was trying to be a little too funny, trying to steal the show, trying to steal the, the scene. Maybe not intentionally, but that's just his acting method. Unfortunately, it didn't work. I, I, I liked him in the first film. I, I liked Don Cheadle much better. I think if they originally cast him, there would be no continuity error, there, no problems, whatever. There are some people who didn't even notice. And for them, that's Damn. whatever. <laughs> well, I noticed because I know both actors and I like both actors in some of their work. Don Cheadle, I've liked him in everything I've ever seen him in. Yeah. Terrence Howard, I've, I'm, I'm hit or miss with him, but he was definitely excellent in Crash and a couple other films. Yeah, definitely I liked this change. This is the difference in, in the actors. Don Cheadle, especially, this goes especially if you've seen Ocean's 13, he has a scene where he comes in dressed as a... He's like an evil Knievel kind of character. And it's totally not like his character in the movie. But you can tell in that scene he's just having a ton of fun. And I think that's his thing. I think Don Cheadle, he likes to have fun when he's working on his set. To have a good time and hang out. There was an article in Entertainment Weekly where he's talking about working on Iron Man. And he goes, he says... They asked him, you know, what was it like working on the Ocean movies? He's like, I was so drunk the whole time, I don't even know. <laughs> and Terrence Howard would have never given a response like that. No. You know, he's a serious actor. He's there to work. He's there to do his thing. Don Cheadle's there. Okay, let's hang out. Let's have fun. Let's quick. So, let's throw some jokes out there. And I liked how Don Cheadle and Robert Downey Jr. kind of switched places as the comedic actor at points. They had really good banter with each other. And they felt like friends. I don't think it felt like that way with Terrence Howard. So, I think Don Cheadle is more set up to do a superhero movie because he knows it's supposed to be a fun time. It's supposed to be a good time at the movie with your friends where you can cheer and rock out to the heavy metal music they had in that movie. And Don Cheadle got that. And he was great to have in the movie. And the other thing is he respects the people he's working for. And he gave Robert Downey Jr. space. He knew he was the star, but Don Cheadle made the movie work and tried to do best he could with it and worked with everyone, and that's great. And I think that's the way John Favreau likes to do things. So I think he fit yeah. much more into what they were trying to do. Yeah, my sister and I talked about this actually last night, and she had one comment. She agreed with both of us that Don Cheadle was, was the better of the two in the, char- in the as the, playing the character. 
but she felt like because there was a change in actors, the friendship that they had that was that was shown in the first movie was kind of almost a little bit negated to the audience, and there needed to be more than just him showing up and kind of his right remark to uh, Downey about, sorry, I didn't know I was going to be here for that Senate hearing. There needed to be a little bit more of a proof that they were friends before the whole thing. And I disagreed with her. I, I said that, no, they established that friendship in the first movie, and just him, that little interaction before he testified in the Senate, you know, that he was asked a question, and he stopped, and he turned, and he said something to, to Tony Stark, and then he went back and answered the question. That was enough to show, hey, you know, we're still buddies, but I got a job to do. The other funny thing about that scene is they were breaking the fourth wall. Because oh, what he says to him, he says, I'm here, it's me, just deal with it and let's get on with the show. Yeah. And, and that was great. I mean, that's exactly what I think you did going into that movie was with that. Exactly. And, and that was the point I made to Shannon was we all knew going in that the, the actor had changed. If you didn't know that, you're not paying attention. And... I think we, we could buy into, and that's part of that suspended disbelief. A man is in an iron suit flying. If we can't make the distinction between Terrence Howard and Don Cheadle playing the same character, then are we really going to be able to make the you know leap that a man is flying around in an iron suit <laughs> with no wings? Right. Come on. Exactly. You know? And going into additions of actors in this movie... Did you think the villains worked? I did. I loved Sam Rockwell as Justin Hammer. The reason I say that is I love Sam Rockwell. Yes. I think he's a, he's a great actor. His part in Frost Nixon was excellent. He's been in tons of other films that just... Confessions of a Dangerous Mind is one that comes to my head. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was in a... In a independent film that was a, a sci-fi film called Moon. Yes. It was just amazing. And he plays a, on a moon base that is doing, I think they, they harnessed energy up there and then beam it back to Earth. And he's the only astronaut up there and he's manning the station all by himself, assisted by a, an android or a robot uh, voiced by, uh, what's his name? Uh, American Beauty guy. Kevin Spacey, thank you. So, excellent movie. And he carries the... It's it's almost like Castaway for Hanks in that Rockwell is the main character. He's He's got almost exclusive screen time and he carries the movie himself. And it's just amazing. Putting an actor of that quality into play a semi-villain in this, in this movie or one of the villains in this movie, is is just brilliant on the part of whoever cast him. And John Favreau using him was excellent. But really, with audiences, I heard mixed things. They either loved or hated Rockwell. I loved Rockwell. Rockwell just added a lot to the character. Really, a lot of the executives that Iron Man goes up against, he goes up ri with rivals to his company in almost all of the comic book stories. I mean, that's his most popular storylines. And they're all kind of portrayed like Jeff Bridges' character of the first one. Right. Which was a weak villain, in my opinion. 
And this was such a better portrayal of that kind of villain, the rival to Tony Stark. Because he was almost a foil to Tony Stark, but he was a little more sarcastic and witty. And I think if you're going to get anyone to play that type of role, Sam Rockwell's your guy. So Absolutely. I, I think he worked really well, and I think he would he carried it. I think if it was just Mickey Rourke by himself, that wouldn't have worked out. I agree, because I like... I've liked Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler and and this film, and kind of his resurgence is, is justified, because he, he does play these characters well. I was not a huge fan of the character he's playing in this, in this film. I, I agree that with the addition of Sam Rockwell and them playing off each other, against each other, however you want to describe it, that made it for a great dual villain or or two villains. And I think it made Mickey Rourke's performance much better than it would have been by itself. Like you just said, because I don't think that character could have held our attention or our, or Iron Man's attention throughout the whole film. There needed to be something else. Well, the way he was written, and and this is kind of true of how that character is partially written in the comics is that he's he's really a quiet, conniving kind of character. Yeah. And I think it got played off so much better when he had Justin Hammer there with him and someone to play off. Like, the whole thing with the bird. Like, that was a great gag. But it would have never worked if, if Rockwell couldn't have played with it. If it was just some average guy, some average henchman that Mickey Rourke's Whiplash character was going to, and he said, bird, that actor wouldn't do anything with it. It wouldn't have worked if it was a random hitchman. It needed to be a solid actor and someone strong. And that worked. Also, Mickey Rourke, I felt like he played the opposite to Rockwell's villain. I think when a villain team-up works the best is when the two villains are really opposite of each other. So then they end up clashing, and that's what caused their, their downfall. And I think that worked in this one. And that was a really natural feeling. Instead of Venom randomly showing up at the end of Spider-Man 3 and teaming up with Sandman, when Sandman was mainly the main villain of that movie. So that didn't make sense, and this one I thought worked much better. Also, additions of actors. We had Sam Jackson come in, and you better like him because he's going to be Nick Fury in about, I would say, eight or nine movies, I guess. I, I don't know what his the contract I think he signed a deal for eight. Eight movies, and he's going to be Nick Fury in all eight movies. Did you think he worked? I absolutely do. I'm not as familiar with the character as you are, but I felt that anything anything Samuel Jackson does seems to be pretty good. I mean, he's had his flops, but in as Mace Windu, he was excellent, even though those movies are, are criticized by many. He's He's been in tons of films that have just been excellent. So... I just recently rewatched Unbreakable, and he plays right. Mr. Glass in that, and he's excellent in that. So I'm really happy to see him being featured in so many of these films. Because yes, it was a small part in this in this film, but I think as as we go forward, his parts are going to be necessarily more elaborate and more. He's going to have more screen time, just because that 
that's necessary in the Avengers movie and in any future Iron Man or Captain America or Thor, any of those movies, he's going to have a necessary part. So I'm, I'm, I think he's a great actor to put in that. Favorite scene from this, from Iron Man, was there in that diner? Yeah. And they're talking, and Tony Stark is looking at him, and he's like, do I look at the patch or do I look at the eye? You know, and it's like, it was the best line of that whole scene. And I I, I just, I laughed out loud when I heard that. And well, so, it was that to, Not to cut you off or anything, but my, my thing with this movie, I was looking forward to see him do a scene with Robert Downey Jr. I was. It was huge. It, that was one of the things I was most excited for. So, that's kind of what I'm excited for with these other movies coming out. Is it, the movies are pairing... Sam Jackson with actors he hasn't been paired with before that are really great actors. And so I get really excited for these movies that come out. It's like, well, how's Sam Jackson going to react with this character? How's it going to be him playing a scene with this character? I get, I get very excited to see him in these movies. And I think that's a draw that's getting the audience to come is that one scene where Sam Jackson pops up or multiple scenes where Sam Jackson pops up. That's a good thing. And I think in Thor... He's going to really help ground us in reality because Thor is going to be a movie that's going to be slightly different than the rest of these superhero movies where it's very, very hardcore on the fantasy thing. And that movie's desperately going to need a character that grounds us. And I think Sam Jackson's a perfect character to bring in because his sarcasm, you know, he's going to go in there doing his Pulp Fiction sarcasm thing and it's going to help us laugh and we're going to be like, okay... We can accept this crazy, nutty world of Asgard. Also, interesting thing about Sam Jackson, for those of you who are hardcore Marvel Comics fans, Sam Jackson's Nick Fury is the version from the Ultimate Universe, and the Ultimate Universe is basically a retelling of all the Marvel stories happened in the 60s. And Ultimate Marvel started around the year 2000, and that Nick Fury was designed to look like Sam Jackson. And his dialogue was written like Sam Jackson. So that's really cool to see that character for the comic books come out. Also, Nick Fury's character desperately needed to be updated, and that Ultimate version was a great move to put in the movie. Because the original Nick Fury is very much so... best way to describe it, he was played by David Hasselhoff in a Nick Fury TV movie that was really bad. And I don't think audiences would have bought a David Hasselhoff Nick Fury in, in any of these movies coming out. But Sam Jackson, who we all know is a bad ass. I cannot say the last word on this podcast. He's perfect to fit in. So that's a great thing. Another great, interesting thing on the S.H.I.E.L.D. front, and she may also be popping up in multiple movies, is Scarlett Johansson as a Black Widow. What was your thoughts on her, Nico? There might not be much to say because <coughs> it's enough said, but what do you, what do you uh, think? She definitely pulled off the hotness. Yes. She definitely pulled off the mixed martial arts skills or however you want to describe it, the files. She was sexy, fighter, and not really very much in this film, so there's hard hardly anything to really say. Her one scene where she's entering into Rockwell's base or to try and find Venko. Venko? Yeah. Or um, whiplash is easier. Or whiplash, yeah. yeah. But I I mean at that point he was kind of in his alter ego Vanko sort of setting so whatever where she took out like 12 guards or 15 guards while Happy's taking out the one 
Yes. <laughs> that was an amazing scene. But that was really, other than the diner scene and her couple scenes as the assistant, as uh, Natalie Rushman, she really didn't have much screen time. So it's hard to say where she's at. I, I was looking at Scarlett Johansson's page on IMDb, and she is announced for the Nick Fury movie and the Avengers movie for sure. So she's going to be in at least those two movies. That's great to hear. I think we'll get a lot more of her in the Nick Fury movie. Absolutely, I think so. Because her backstory is really, really interesting and really compelling. And I hope a movie audience gets to see that. And it really fits into the whole spy espionage kind of thing. And I don't think that world has been introduced yet to the superhero film universe. So it'll be neat to see where that goes, and I'm glad she's in the Avengers movie. They needed a female character on the team, and she's easier to explain than someone like Scarlet Witch, who comes out of the X-Men universe. And trying to connect the universe of Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, and all those movies coming out to the X-Men films would be very difficult. So I'm glad she's in there, but it's a great actor. Scarlett Johansson's really good. So I, I've seen her in other films. I like her performances. So it'll be really interesting to get to see her do the... The true blue Black Widow backstory because it's really interesting and it's kind of sad too. So and it's perfect for a dramatic actress like her. So I hope that pans out and we get to see that. Also, for those of you that are not comic book fans, Natalie Rushman is just a cover name. That is not the character's real name. So right, if you're talking right. to any people that you know that are comic book experts, be careful not to say their name is Natalie Rushman. Please just call her the Black Widow. It's just simpler. I'll make your lives easier. Well, she's Natalia Momonova, right? Yes, yes. And yeah. they'll explain her Russian background in the next movie. The other thing is, because of her age, and at this day and age, it might be tricky to explain that she's a Russian spy, so they may come up with something else just to modernize it a bit. Just giving everyone kind of a warning. And my last question about the movie, we kind of breached on it before, so we can kind of just get through this real quick. Did you think the fight scenes were weak in the film? Well, as I said before, I thought that they were fine. I thought that that was not the ultimate goal of this movie. Right. I think sometimes, like I was saying, you know, people were looking for Iron Man 1, and sometimes we get too caught up in the length of a fight scene and how much CG or how good the CG looks. I thought the CG looked fine in this. Yeah, it was great. It was fine. The, no for, for instance, my favorite fight scene in this was the... the the flying scene where he was flying around and uh, Rhodey was chasing him or War Machine was chasing him, trying to get un the, the missile lock from, from actually getting him because he wasn't in control. I, I, I thought that that was an excellent scene. I thought the CG looked great. I felt like there was plenty of action in that sequence. And ultimately, I loved at the end where he... Uh, Everything's good. all the all the uh, battle bots. I, I forget what they called them in the <laughs> in the movie, but all of the ones that were made by Rockwell. Just go Rockwell with drones. Started. Okay, the drones. <laughs> all the drones are about to explode, and Iron Man swoops in, grabs Pepper, and and flies off. And it's like right as all the bombs are exploding, he, he swoops in and saves her. I thought that was a great scene as well, and. Just as it's not technically a fight scene, but it's the end of the fight scene, and he uh, swoops in and saves the lady at the end. 
the damsel in distress, the love scene right after that is great. Yeah. But you know, the Good. fight scenes were the fight scenes were were not the same as Iron Man One. I've already said that. But I don't think they were bad and I don't I definitely don't think they were weak. Yeah, I with you. Watching a show known as Smallville for about ten years where the longest fight scene in the history of that show has been 47 seconds. I, I was fine with it. I think that show's proved you can tell superhero stories without needing the superhero knockdown, smackdown fights. And I think Iron Man was another example of that. And Iron Man was made like a movie. A typical drama. And that's what it should be made as. So I'm okay if there's not a lot of fight scenes, as I said before. Especially since there's a lot of successful examples of things like Smallville that can tell a good story, a good superhero story, without needing all the fight scenes. So I was fine with that. Also, the thing is, for those of you who are still are like, oh, these fight scenes are bad, keep in mind that they might be holding back a little bit for the Avengers movie. You don't want to have a huge Iron Man flying sequence when they might have a bigger one planned for the Avengers movie. And I know there's probably already work being done and being planned on how some of those fight scenes are going to work in the Avengers movie. There's probably things already being storyboarded. So you don't want to go in the Avengers movie and being disappointed. I think a lot of these moves on maybe having shorter fight scenes or not as long of fight scenes are, one, to save money for the Avengers movie, because Marvel's financing that too. And the other reason is I think they don't want you guys as fans to be disappointed if the fight scene in the Avengers movie is not as good. It's kind of like the situation that they had, we talked about last week with Smallville, their finances. We figured that they cut down on what they did in the finale of season nine, or trying not to do a big fight scene, so the finale of that show won't be a disappointment. I think the reason we treat these fight scenes with Iron Man, the reason why it's slow is to build up the Avengers movie. So you don't go on the Avengers movie and go, oh, that fight scene wasn't as good as the end of Iron Man 2, where they really push the envelope on effects. I think they're just leaving it to Joss, Whedon to push the effects to the next level with his film. And knowing Joss Whedon's imagination and some of the things he pulled off with effects on Buffy and Angel as well, I think we're going to get something really great. The last... Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Those of you that didn't want to fight, just please be patient and wait and go see that Avengers movie. And you going to see Thor in these next movies coming out is going to what make that movie to happen. So go see the upcoming superhero films that are coming out next summer. The last part, speaking of upcoming Marvel films, is kind of references, or Easter eggs, shall we say, that they made in this movie to the idea that this movie takes place within a larger Marvel universe, and also kind of giving hints at how all these upcoming Marvel movies are going to fit together into the Avengers film. And the first thing is, that was noticeable, the guy who gets Whiplash, the Monaco ticket, which is the ticket to the racetrack which he attacks, is from the Ten Rings, and that was the terrorist group that kidnapped Tony Stark in the beginning of the first film. And also is named of the organization that is run by an Iron Man villain by the name of the Mandarin, who may possibly be the villain in Iron Man 3. So they may be setting things up for Iron Man 3 with that one. The other thing is, in the box of stuff that Tony Stark went through to find the film footage of his father that helped him figure out what needed to be done to fix his problem with his heart. There was a map of Antarctica in there, which, interesting enough, is the place where Captain America 
was frozen in suspended animation and released from in the comics. So that may connect to the end of the Captain America movie where I think he will be frozen in suspended animation. The other thing, which was very noticeable, if you did miss this one, you must have fell asleep, was Captain America's shield. They showed a broken Captain America's shield and made a really great joke about it that really fits in with Tony Stark and Steve Rogers' Captain America's relationship. So that was really interesting. Also, there was a reference to vibranium. That was the metal that Tony Stark synthesized to his new heart to help him from stop getting poisoned. The metal he used to make it better was known as vibranium. And that vibranium came from a place called Wakanda, which basically is an African colony that is protected by the superhero Black Panther. Which means that Marvel possibly has a Black Panther movie slated, so maybe referencing to that, it also could mean that Black Panther could be one of the Avengers in the Avengers movie. And to add to that example, and this stuff with the vibranium, also, one more note on vibranium, that's what Captain America's shield is made of. And to kind of emphasize this idea that it was vibranium from the country of Wakanda, there was a map of Wakanda at the end of the movie in the scene where Nick Fury, played by Sam Jackson, and Tony Stark are talking about his career, his position with the Avengers. And also during that scene, there was news footage, and it was current news footage, of the Incredible Hulk character, played by Ed Norton, attacking the university. Which, if you've seen that movie, there's a scene where Ed Norton, as Bruce Banner, also known as the Hulk, runs into this kind of sky bridge, or this walkway between two buildings at the university, and it gets attacked. And there's a shot behind Nick Fury in the scene where he's talking to Tony Stark of that building and that walkway broken and on fire. So this basically means that Iron Man 2 took place at the same time as the Incredible Hulk film that came out last summer. And finally, the big one, if you waited for after the credits, they showed Thor's hammer to let you know that the Thor movie is coming out next summer, which I'm pretty sure everyone kind of knows about. So I'm going to open that. Nico, do you have any predictions about the Avengers movie or any questions about those Easter eggs? No, I think I think you explained most of them pretty well. I'm not as excited as everybody else about the Thor movie because I'm not familiar. I've never read the comics. I've never seen any of the Thor stuff. My most exposure to Thor was in Adventures in Babysitting. Yes. That's what so, most people says. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So I'm not as excited, although because it ties into Iron Man and Captain America and the Avengers in general, I'm going to see it because yeah. I want to know the story. And I think it's going to be interesting yeah. and definitely how it all folds together. It's going to be interesting on a lot of fronts, how that movie's going to do, who's going to want to go see it, all that stuff. I think what's going to get people to see it is the reason why you're going to go see it. Is just to know his backstory, know what's going on. I exactly. personally don't know a whole heck, oh, heck of a lot about Thor either. So that's going to be one of the first superhero movies I'm going to go to and not know kind of what's going on in the comics and not be able to make that complaint or make the decision or be happy about, oh, that was like the comics or that was not like the comics. I don't really know enough about Thor to make that conclusion. I'm looking at it as a filmmaker, and do I like this movie or not, and how well does it fit in with the other characters. And I'm also going to be looking at during that movie is, 
How well is Nick Fury portrayed in this movie, and how does he fit into it all? That's more of my concern. That's more of where I'm coming from. I'm not as big a fan, but I also get why they came out with Hulk and Iron Man first, is because those are more accessible characters than Thor. So those desires to see those characters and how their stories works out is going to be what's going to get me and other people to go see Thor. But I think the big superhero movie to look forward to is the Captain America film. He's a very accessible superhero, and it's going to be a superhero period piece, which is going to interest people. That'll be good, and then I think Thor will be pulled off real well in the Avengers movie. Also what helps is there's some big actors, such as Natalie Portman and Anthony Hopkins, who are going to be in the Thor movie, and I think those their star power is going to draw people. Also, Kenneth Branagh is a really great director and really has a great image of things. And John Favreau has worshipped the Thor movie from what he's seen of it so far. So it should be okay. It really should be. So probably next summer, if the podcast is still going, we'll discuss that too when it comes around. Absolutely. All right. So now we're just going to wrap things up right now. Next week's episode, we're basically going to do talk about the fall 2010 TV schedule, how the shows that we talk about weekly are going to fit into everything. And then we're also going to talk about what pilots we want to watch next season and maybe possibly what we're going to add to the show. I know a big one we're going to discuss next week is The Cape, which there's a lot of news on that. If you check out KryptonSite.com, we also have a link to it on our website. You can find out all about The Cape, which is a great show. It's going to have people like Summer Glau and other people that are well-known to fans of the Weederverse on it. Also, you can contact us in a variety of different places. You can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also hit up our Twitter at acrossairwaves. There's no the in that one. It's just acrossairwaves. And also there's links to that on our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. So check out that site. There's a blog there. There's things you can comment on. Also, you can subscribe to it. And we'll also be posting episodes of our podcast. By the time this podcast airs, there should be our first episode up there. So you can go check that out. And also feel free to leave a comment on the posts for these episodes. If you have any comments or questions about things we're talking about, feel free to get a hold of us anytime. We also have a voicemail. You can leave a message on our voicemail, and we may respond to it on the air and add it to our recording. Tanika, what's that number? That number is 773-809-3363. So that's it for this week. Once again, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reichstadt. And until next week, we'll catch you on the airwaves. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.